I'm Christian Perez, and this is Modernity and Absurdity. Thanks for listening to this highly relevant episode of Modernity and Absurdity. In this episode, we go into the seeming disconnect between the Bernie Sanders campaign and the Black Lives Matter movement. Professor Flavio Hickel Jr. states that to imply that Bernie Sanders was tone deaf to the issues regarding African Americans is dishonest. By focusing on Sanders, it lets Hillary Clinton, the perceived Democratic frontrunner, off the hook. We get into third-party politics and whether or not progressives should pull the Democratic Party further to the left. There's even a little talk of Trump at the end, because we couldn't help ourselves. Have Republicans jumped the shark? Okay, so here we are with Professor Flavio Hickel. How are you doing today, Flavio? Oh, I can't complain. How are you, sir? Not bad, not bad. Um, before we get started, can you just give me some background information, um, where you went to school, what you studied, and what your qualifications are? Yeah, I did, uh, <laughs> I did my bachelor's in uh, sociology. I did a master's in public policy and international affairs, and I'm currently working on my dissertation um, in political science, specifically the American politics subfield, specializing in things like... Uh, you know, party politics, the presidency, political behavior, things like that. So all my qualifications are done. Now it's just a dissertation, and I teach uh, quite a few classes on those subjects. Sounds good, sounds good. I mean, this is interesting because this is all relevant to what we want to jump into today. What I want to talk about is this recent, uh, we'll call it a kerfluffle from, uh, from <laughs> this weekend, where Bernie Sanders was and Martin O'Malley, they were speaking at the Netroots Nation conference in Phoenix, Arizona, and... While they were speaking, there were some activists from the Black Lives Matter movement who had some tactics that many people have criticized. Admittedly so, my gut reaction was to be a little bit angry with them, and I am definitely sympathetic to the Black Lives Matter movement. Agree pretty much with everything they have to say. I'm a little iffy on the tactics, but I do see this as, as something that can lead to something, something better. But since your expertise is the American political system and issues regarding the presidency, I feel that uh, you have a lot to offer this, this conversation. Well, I hope so. I mean, I think I share some of your sentiments. There were things that, you know, the knee-jerk reaction to it, there was some, uh, I was a little iffy on it, but uh, yeah, I think like you overall, obviously you have to be sympathetic. Obviously, there's a real issue. Obviously, uh, there's legitimate anger and concern. I think the tactics are fine, ultimately, but I think strategically there's probably some things they could have done that would have been a little bit all right sounds know, good i mean we sure. can definitely get into that so let's take it back to 2006 okay a fun year i believe you and i both graduated undergrad in 2006 oh, that's that was right. an interesting time interesting time um in 2006 president bush at the time gave a speech to the naacp and i'm not much for or i'm not one to praise president bush on no, a lot of different things <laughs> but he made he made one point that always stuck out to me, and what he said to the NAACP at the time, was that the Democratic Party tends to take black votes for granted. How do you feel about that? Would you agree with a statement like that? 
Yeah, broadly, I, th I think I would, and not that I ever want to agree with Bush, but you know, in the in the literature, particularly in party politics, things like that, there's a, a guy Paul Freimer who has this really excellent theory on electoral capture. Um, ultimately, the way the theory works is um, if a particular interest group or constituency, their support is being basically taken for granted by um, the party they traditionally support. And the reason that happens is because the opposition party, frankly, doesn't want their vote, right? So in this case, um, you know, the black vote, frankly, Republican Party doesn't really want it, right? Uh, trying to adopt positions that benefit uh, black America. Um, would end up probably dividing their constituency, and the rationalist the argument they would make is that we're going to lose more votes than we gain by trying to win the black vote. So if the black vote can't go to the Republican Party because they don't want them, it's stuck with the Democratic Party. And there's reason why they're, they were already with the Democratic Party, right? Democratic Party historically, during the Civil Rights Movement, and even New Deal, had policies that benefited black America, right? So obviously, it's logical for black America to default to the Democratic Party. The problem is the Democrats know that Republicans don't want their vote, mm -hmm. hence the Democratic Party doesn't have to do anything to actually win the black vote, right? So they can just sort of, they, Bush is right, they can take it for granted. Um, and, you know, frankly, the similar argument can be made about Hispanic Americans and, you know, for a long time, uh, you know, the gay rights community and things like that. So, yeah, I think it's correct to argue the black vote is electorally captured by the Democrats. Okay. Do you see Black Lives Matter, the, the creation of Black Lives Matter, do you see this as a failure of the Democrats? Now, what I mean is building on this, ta taking black votes for granted, the inability of Democrats to dress to address the needs of black people in this country. Is the creation of Black Lives Matter something that exists outside the Democratic Party? Is that a failure of the Democrats? Because, I mean, you referenced the, the New Deal, and I love the New Deal. I think the New Deal is one of the best things to happen to this country. Uh, dropped unemployment from 25% in this country to 14%. But there were parts of the New Deal that expressly kept out black, uh, well, I black would, domestic workers, I would Latinx say, cultural workers. I would say expressly, expressly is right, right? Yeah. I mean, like, the, 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 con the, the compromise that the New Deal had to make with the South, right? So New Deal coalition is incredibly tense. It's like the modern Republican coalition. You've got these northern Democrats and southern conservatives trying to work together. Northern Democrats want... Um, you know, Social Security, they want all these different labor laws and things like that. Southern Democrats sort of, to get them to go along with the bargain, the North had to agree to exclude um, black America. because Whole they segments of the population. Exactly, right? So the only way, so Social Security and all these laws specifically had provisions that said domestic workers are excluded, agricultural workers are excluded, and things like that. So you're right on, on that certain point. On the, you know, the base question, is Black Lives Matter sort of a creation of the failure of the Democratic Party? You know, I would probably largely argue yes in a lot okay. of ways, right? So, building off Frimer, you know, in this theory of electoral capture, I think the argument would be made is that the Democrats have taken uh, the black vote for granted. They haven't done enough to really address concerns in the black community, um, and at this point, it's sort of hit a you know a crisis point, right? With all these shootings and all these different things going on, um, you know, I I think that 
they emerge uh, to try and deal with this and to try and force the Democrats to stop ignoring them. There's a recognition, I would assume, you know, and I'm not a member of the Black Lives Matter movement or anything like that explicitly, and I'm certainly not, you know, I'm white, you know, but my assumption would be um, that they've largely targeted Democrats rather than Republicans because there's a recognition that Republicans, we're not going to move them, right? We're not going to get any Republicans to sign off on anything we really want to do. The best we can hope for is to try and push Democrats to actually acknowledge our concerns and actually win our vote, right? So they advocate for this stuff so Democrats will actually work to get their vote. And I think in that sense, it's really smart because they are challenging uh, the fact that they are captured. Okay, so building on that, do you, I mean, earlier you said that you had some some sympathy to the tactics of the Black Lives Matter activists at, at Netroots Nation 15. So do you agree with their tactics, this kind of in-your-face direct action tactic, this, this attempt to, We'll say shoot up a flare to bring light to the issue. I yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with direct protest action, direct politics, right? I, I mean, historically, it's always been very effective. You have to force people to pay attention to your demands and your grievances, and absolutely. I think that's smart. So I think what they did, especially at a very high-profile event for the Democratic Party, is is extremely smart. And for the entire progressive movement, exactly. And I and I you know applaud them for the direct action they took. Um, and again, I think it's it's really important to force Democrats to take to not take their vote for granted, right? Particularly, and even progressives, because a lot of times progressives do that also. Yeah. Now, you know, where I sort of had issue is the fact that it was limited to just Bernie Sanders mm. and O'Malley. And O'Malley, yes. I'm not as familiar yes. with, but the fact that you're you're doing this specifically just to Bernie Sanders, and more specifically, the fact that you're not doing it to Clinton, I think, is a problem strategically. Um, and I, I just don't understand that particular decision as much, but I'm sure, you know, we'll get into that a little bit more. Anyway. I mean, you think that they should definitely whatever they did to, to Sanders and O'Malley is something that they they should they should, I don't want to say attack Hillary, but come at Hillary. Well, for. again, if the argument is that the Democratic Party should start taking them more seriously and actually uh, advocate policies that will benefit them and not just pandering to them and expecting their vote to come, then you got to do it to all the Democrats, particularly the Democrat who you know, by all accounts, is almost assuredly going to get the Democratic nomination, if not assuredly win the general election, right? So if Hillary's the one that's actually going to be, you know, running the party, essentially, then this protest should be aimed squarely at her. Granted, Bernie Sanders has some work to do on racial issues, and we, I'm sure we'll get into that more anyway, but, you know, um, I don't think Hillary is clean on that either. And again, if you want to force the candidates to not take you for granted, you need to do this kind of direct action, and Hillary Clinton seems to me to be a very logical target of it. Definitely, she should she should be the one. So, do you see the once again I refer to it as a kerfluffle? Do you mm -hmm. see this whole disconnect between uh, you know your your kind of your white economic justice liberals and your black systemic racism uh, progressives? Is this a bad thing? Is this necessarily a bad thing? The fact that there's this disconnect. <coughs> No, I don't think it's, I mean, well, yeah, I, I mean, I think the disconnect is problematic, right? Because, Absolutely. you know, like, um, you know, the, the critique of Bernie Sanders is that he is sort of the OG, you know, of the of the old mind on socialism, democratic socialism, which sort of looks at economic justice trumps all, yes. right? And racial injustice can be sort of subsumed into that category. Once you fix economic problems, you fix racial problems, and I think that is a problematic way of thinking, mm -hmm. right? So... Um, I think it's right that they take these kind of actions to sort of uh, try and force candidates to articulate a better position, which says, you know, both are incredibly important things, right? Economic injustice and racial injustice are both incredibly important right now. They are related. There's no doubt about that. But they are still distinct, and you need to analyze them differently, address them sometimes differently. 
And I think it's totally appropriate to argue that Bernie Sanders and everyone else should, uh, you know, acknowledge that and, and actually act on it. Yeah. Well, what do you see? What do you see is the future of Black Lives Matter? Do you see them as an organization going the same way as an organization like Occupy Wall Street? Because Occupy Wall Street specifically stayed out of the electoral process. Black Lives Matter, by bum rushing two potential presidential candidates, are very much in tune that that in order to change the system, you need to be a part of the system. Well, yeah. So I mean, you know, so two parts. Like, I mean, number one, you you need to get involved in the electoral process. If you're not involved in the electoral process in some capacity, then you're completely irrelevant. Absolutely. Right? Politicians okay. want to get reelected. That is their base motivation. Um, if you're not voting, they have no reason to acknowledge you or advocate for anything on your behalf. Right? So you and, don't agree with not voting? Not voting is silly. Yeah, and not participating in, Democrat, in the in the process is silly. Um, I don't think it achieves any any kind of realistic goal or pragmatic goal. Right? So you know, and that's that's me personally. Um, and I think specifically with Black Lives Matter, the fact that they are, again, trying to battle against electoral capture and trying to actually make candidates listen to them and adopt these policies, I think it's smart that they're getting involved. And I think it was foolish for Occupy Wall Street not to really get involved. The broader problem I saw with Occupy Wall Street was that it was, it was a, a really disorganized, largely anarchist type group that was unable to articulate any kind of clear policy that they wanted to have happen, right? So they want to rein in Wall Street, you know, Wall Street power and things like that, but there was no real concrete, this is what we actually want to see happen. This is the reform we want to get politicians to move on. It doesn't have to be super detailed spelled out, but like this is an actionable item. A platform. A platform, something. And Occupy Wall Street couldn't articulate that. And eventually, you know, they, they become irrelevant um, for a variety of reasons, but I think that's a big one. For me, you know, that, that's sort of the, the danger is does Black, uh, Black Lives Matter articulate some sort of clear position? Now, uh, they're obviously arguing for justice for the injustice that has been done. And that has to be done, and it's totally important. Um, and I don't want to diminish that at all. But beyond these isolated cases, you need to have some sort of broad reform agenda. You know, something that says, you know, we think that, we sh that politicians should be doing X, Y, and Z, and it's, in our, it's sort of a platform for us. This three points we want all politicians to adopt, something like that, and I think they need to try and press politicians, uh, particularly the Democratic Party, to adopt that agenda, and that's how they remain relevant, right? So if you could bombard Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, will you support the Black Lives Matter agenda, which is this actionable item? Then I think they could be highly something effective point to. and highly influential, exactly. And but if they don't, if it's just you know uh, the, these isolated cases, which people can write off. Um, then it just becomes sort of an anger reactionary type movement or something. Like you need to actually proactively be calling for something, and I think that's what's important. How do you feel about the whole third party criticism of Bernie Sanders? So, for instance, uh, Jill Stein is the perennial candidate for president from the Green Party, and her whole idea is: yes, Bernie and I share similar points, we we, we share similar views. However, I'm not going to serve my votes up to Hillary. I have a quote from her, and she says regarding. She says she admitted that she and, and Bernie Sanders share a similar vision, but she said, quote, that vision will not die. It will not be absorbed back into a party that is essentially hostile to that vision. So I think what she's speaking to is this idea that you need to build a, uh, a new ideological movement, right? So the argument would be, that she's, I think, implicitly making is that Democrats are a centrist party. They will never go as far as people that support Bernie Sanders or the Green Party in general would like them to go. Mm -hmm. So her argument would be, don't support the centrist party. Try to build a new third party. And I think it's an admirable goal. Um, I think given the, 
you know, our electoral structure, first past the post, winner take all structure, which leads to two parties, which de disincentivizes voting for a third party, which makes it very hard to even get third party candidates listed. I don't think it's realistic to argue we should try and build a third party. I think the more uh, pragmatic strategy in the near term is to try and move the Democratic Party to the left, right? So. Her argument would be you're going to vote for Bernie Sanders. If you're up to the left, you're going to vote for Bernie Sanders, and then eventually you're going to support a moderate candidate. She would say don't support this third-party candidate or don't support Bernie Sanders. It's going to lead to the centrist. Support me. I'm always going to be third-party. You can always vote for me and stick with the Green Party. And again, I think it's admirable. I won't knock anyone that wants to support the third party, but for me, I think it's more important to try and have a pragmatic effect. And I think support for Bernie Sanders, although, yes, you will eventually vote for Hillary if she's going to be the nominee, which is probably likely. Um, although you eventually vote for Hillary, I think should Bernie get enough support, then we stand a chance to really push Hillary to the left on key issues. And in particular, where Hillary and Bernie have a clear difference is going to be on economic injustice, right? So she's played an awful lot of lip service, and but she's clearly um, the candidate of corporate America. She clearly has their backing. Uh, I don't trust her, and I don't think anyone has any reason to trust her, that she would really go hard against Wall Street or anything like that, I think, you know, Bernie Sanders would. So, I mean, looking at Hillary, some of her biggest donors are Citigroup, Goldman Sachs. Her two largest campaign contributors are Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, in the top 10, Morgan Stanley, Time Warner, Lehman Brothers. These are not organizations that are necessarily going to favor economic economic justice. Well, so she's going to have a challenge there, right? So if we if the left does succeed and, and there's enough support for Bernie Sanders that it pushes Hillary to the left then she's going to have a challenge. How does she placate these kind of people? Um, but that's got to be the goal, right? That's got to be the goal. If you're going to support Bernie Sanders, that's the ultimate goal, that we can put enough pressure that she has to move in those areas because that's not something she naturally wants to do. You know, you got to remember, historically, Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton represent the new Democratic um, faction of the party, Yes. which was basically we're going to abandon our traditional support of labor um, we're going to electorally capture them, right? We know they're not going anywhere, so we still get Labor's vote, but we're not necessarily going to advocate on their behalf as strongly. We're going to make inroads with corporate America and try and suggest that we can be your party too, right? You don't have to support Republicans, you support Democrats. So Hillary is much more corporate friendly, and I think that's what the left really has to try and do is move her to the left on these economic issues. And that's why I would advocate supporting Bernie over a third party. Okay, okay. I mean, Hillary, I mean, just to touch on who Hillary is, Hillary rolls deep. Hillary is powerful. Hillary's got major backers. Her husband is probably the most beloved president in a generation. Okay, so one of her uh, proxies, and I, maybe I won't even go that far, but I was watching the interview on MSNBC with Missouri Senator Claire McCaskill, and the talking point she was pushing was when, when confronted with the fact that Bernie Sanders was pulling in huge numbers in whether they be in Iowa, whether they be in New Hampshire, no matter where he goes, he's pulling in well over 10,000 people, which is a lot. Her big issue was the crowds don't really matter because Ron Paul got crowds, Pat Buchanan got crowds. The way I take it is that she's implying that at this point, crowd, crowds imply that you're some kind of an extremist. Now, looking at Bill Clinton as your most prominent centrist liberal, is it a way to paint anybody to the left of Hillary as an extremist? I think it is an attempt, right? I think it's an attempt to buy, and I would call her a Hillary proxy. It's an attempt, I think, to try and delegitimize Bernie Sanders and take the first stab at him, which drives me nuts because, you know, the Democrats shouldn't be eating our, eating their own, right? No. Let Republicans tear, tear them down, if anything, right? Welcome to the primaries. Um, exactly, you know, so, and, and not only that, Bernie Sanders doesn't pose any kind of real serious threat to Hillary Clinton right now anyway, as much as I'd like him to, because I, I wholeheartedly support him, 
Yeah. You know, but um, he spent three million of fifteen dollars, fifteen million dollars already. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I mean, Bernie Sanders is the first candidate that I've ever donated money to, right? Mm -hmm. So I I support him wholeheartedly. Guilty. But uh, you know, to argue that just because you're drawing big crowds this early on, you're an extremist. I mean, I don't know. I think it's a problem, right? The fact that you're drawing big crowds and that you're popular, I don't think it's anything to denigrate anyone for, right? Um, and you know, to the other part of the question, yes, obviously. You know, realistically, Bernie Sanders is extreme compared to Clinton, yes. right? Clinton is a moderate. She's not. She's a centrist, right? Um, just to the left, you know, um, and that's I think a fair, you know, approximation of her ideological stance. So to say that Bernie Sanders is extreme, yes, you know, to say that Pat Buchanan was extreme of the Republicans at the time, that's probably accurate. Also, is there anything wrong with that? No, we don't have a proportional representation system with multi-parties. We have a two-party system, so the primaries is where people of more ideological extremes can actually feel represented, where they can feel like they can have an impact in the political process, right? So if you get enough support for Bernie Sanders, you push Clinton to the left. If Buchanan got enough support, he pulls you know, the Republicans to the right. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think to denigrate anyone uh, for you know the size of their crowds or when they come out, I think that's just a, a really weak you know, attack. Pretty it's, weak sauce. It's very superficial, right? I mean, it, okay. yeah. Taking it back to third parties, do you see a third party as being able to fix anything? Considering how the Democrats and Republicans both control Congress, um, do you, and, and how, I mean, even looking at President Obama, I believe it was uh, Harry Reid said that the primary goal of the Republican Party during Obama's first term was to make sure Obama didn't have a second term, which is problematic in many ways because your primary goal should be helping Americans, not screwing over the president. Do you see a third party president on that magic day when pigs fly? Do you see them as even being able to get things accomplished? Uh, wouldn't both parties turn against or, or, or work against this this third party candidate or this third party president? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I mean, there's a couple questions involved in there. I mean, what I would say, you know, the, there is a rational, logical, as much as we hate it, there is a logical reason why the parties are obstructionist, right? So yes, Republicans are obstructionist bastards at the moment against Obama. And they have every elective incentive to do so. Supporting Obama in any way gives Obama victory. It only creates more chaos for them, because then their constituents are like, why aren't you fighting Obama more, right? Um, it logically makes sense for them to deny Obama victory and then later campaign and say, he's ineffective, elect us, we will be effective, right? Yeah, we'll do it better. That's totally logical. Having said that, Democrats did the same thing, right? Democrats in 2006, when they retook Congress against Bush, they were obstructionist, right? Um, historically, parties have done this, particularly since like the it's 1970s, politics. you know, when, yeah, there were a variety of institutional changes, right? So this is politics as normal. Now, what happens when you throw a third party in there? You know, it's anyone's guess, right? A third party president with uh, the same two parties in Congress. You know, I have no idea how that would turn out, but frankly, I find the prospect incredibly unrealistic, right? Yeah. I mean, so what are the chances of a third party actually getting somewhere? You know, slim to none. The only time a third party's ever been substantive electorally was the Republicans in the 1860s. Aside from that, you know, third parties are normally spoilers. Teddy Roosevelt in the early 20th century, you know, essentially giving Woodrow Wilson the victory, which turned out pretty good for us, right, as a country. Um, you had Ross Perot, you know, essentially giving Bill Clinton a victory in 92, you know. Um, Nader. Nader, you know, which people debate whether or not he really gave Bush the victory. But, you know, like, so generally speaking, third parties are you know, spoilers normally. Now, what they do do is they do force issues, right? They do force issues yes. on the agenda. They do force parties to try and adapt so that they can retain 
those members that would otherwise go over to the third party, right? So it's called interest aggregation for all you political science students out yeah, there. Yeah. So I mean, you know, for example, you know, someone like uh, you know Nader forces Gore to talk about liberal issues and, and issues of interest to consumers and, and whatnot. You know, someone like Ross Perot forces Republicans to talk about the deficit. You know, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, because he's in there, everyone's got to be a progressive, you know, in that election, right? So, I mean, third parties are important. I don't want to denigrate them, but they they serve a different function other than actually achieving electoral power. And, again, that's not the denigrated. It's significant. It's just different. All right. So touching on what you said with regards to Black Lives Matter, how they should create some kind of platform in order to uh, influence and hopefully pull the Democratic Party in a certain direction – Looking at the fate of Black Lives, Black Lives Matter and hoping that they don't turn out the same way as Occupy Wall Street, because I do have a lot of faith with the Black Lives Matter movement. I, I, I hope everything works out. I'm a man of color myself. I've, I'm a brown man. I very much sympathize with that movement. Looking at the fate of Black Lives Matter, do you see them succeeding more nationally or locally? I think it depends on their tactics, right? So, I mean, if they develop an agenda, you know, or, or again, even just one reform topic, we want to reform... Uh, how police departments report crime statistics, or you know, whatever. Right? Pick some reform, something substantial, something meaningful, and adopt it. If they run with that, I think, and if they put enough pressure on the Democratic Party right now, I think that they can be very influential, right? If they could go up to Hillary and Sanders and say, will you sign off on this? That can be important. Now, granted, because they haven't put any pressure on Hillary, which is, I think, the big problem here, right? So when they attack Bernie Sanders, they're implicitly saying, you're bad on race. And because they didn't attack Hillary, they're implicitly saying, she's fine on race. To the untrained observer. Right, because they haven't put any pressure on Hillary Clinton, you know, she's got no incentive to adopt whatever they would put forward, however Bernie Sanders now does. So if they put pressure on both candidates, they can force them to actually adopt whatever platform they have. Um, so I think that's how they could have like sort of a national impact. Um, now, the, part of the problem also is how do you get something like this through uh, Republican Congress? You know, that may not happen, you know. Um, so you might have to wait until Democrats completely retake control of everything. Alternatively, I think locally there's there's even more room to perhaps grow, right? Locally, city like New York, city exactly. like Los Angeles, you, you start, Ferguson. You start targeting mayors, you start talking, targeting the state house, the governor's office, things like that. Try and win locally in the way that, let's say, the Working Families Party or other smaller parties have I done. I it was uh, La Raza Unida Party in the Southwest, a primarily Latino party, was able to get a lot of things passed. Exactly. And it's not that they necessarily have to become a party. I'm not necessarily arguing that. But what I would say is if you have at least one agenda and try and get state legislatures and things like that to move on that agenda, you can start to build momentum. And what social movements need to prevent from dying out is wins, right? You need something to energize supporters, to help recruit more people to get involved. You need small-scale wins that you can actually achieve and then build off that and build momentum. So I think that's locally, you know, the whole thing. But again, I, I think the, the big takeaway is you need to develop some sort of action item. And again, you know, for me, the big annoyance with this whole... Um, you know, uh, Netroots Nation thing has to do with the fact that they did not do anything targeting Hillary Clinton. They gave her a pass on race, and frankly, I don't think she deserves it, right? She's, you know, I, for me, it looks mostly like she's paid, done nothing but pay lip service. Well, let me just say this real quick. Uh, half of her top campaign staff is women. One-third of her campaign staff are people of colors. Uh, Bernie primarily has a white campaign staff. What do you what do you think? Can we kick that around also? Yeah, I mean, I Keeping think that in mind. I mean, Ber you know, Bernie needs to diversify, right? And I'm not, you know, like no one's perfect 100 percent of the time, right? So yeah. Bernie does need to diversify. He does need to get more explicit on race. He does need to more clearly articulate that racial injustice is related but distinct from economic injustice. He does need to make improvements. And Black Lives Matter is correct in hitting him on that. 
But Hillary Clinton, you know, I, I don't think uh, she's done that. I don't think just by mere fact that you have people on your staff that represent uh, minority communities sort of take takes care of everything. I don't think she's done much more than really pay lip service to their issues. I'm, I don't have as much confidence in her to take the radical action that would be needed to really address these concerns. Whereas even though, you know, I think Bernie Sanders has a demonstrated track record of doing things that are unpopular, if yeah. they're right, of being radical and not being scared to be radical. I don't think Clinton will do that. I think push comes to shove, Clinton will abandon, you know, these uh, positions she's taken thus far in favor of winning a general election or something like that. And I think that's, you know, again, that's a reason why they need to put pressure on her. Well, let me say this. Uh, a lot of the media coming out of Netroots Nation, a lot of the commentary really pushed the idea that Bernie was flummoxed. And I could see why Bernie would have been caught off guard by that. But let me just quote what, what Bernie said. Bernie said, and I quote, when we talk about issues like Black Lives Matter, let me tell you something. A study came out a few weeks ago talking about youth unemployment in America, an issue we do not deal with as a nation. And here's what, here's what that said. What that report said is that if you're a high school graduate and you're white, the unemployment rate is 33%. If you're Hispanic, the unemployment rate is 36%. If you're African-American, the unemployment rate is 51%. And in my view, maybe, just maybe, it's time we invest in jobs and education, not in jails and incarceration. So he was talking to black people about black issues and issues that affect black people. It wasn't as implicit as some people would have hoped, but he's not totally uh, tone deaf to the idea. I, I mean, I think anyone that argues that Bernie Sanders... Um supports the status quo in terms of race relations in America, in terms of how police, in terms of police brutality, in terms of mass incarceration, in terms of the economy and the black community. I think anyone that makes that argument is completely out of touch with reality, okay. right? Like he has a clear track record. There's nothing about his track record or his passport or anything that says that he would be opposed to any of that stuff or it would be a hard sell on him. Okay. I don't think the same could be said about the other Democrats in the primary. Okay. You know, I think, I don't think you can automatically assume Hillary Clinton is on board with trying to make radical changes to how we do uh, the relationship between police and communities uh, or, you know, mass incarceration or things like that. And I think his answer, you know, again, it, it, people thought he didn't go far enough. I, I, you know, for me personally, I thought it was certainly on the right track at least. It's you very know. much a what have you done for me lately I suppose, and, issue. Yeah, and that's, that's a little frustrating because, again, it should be what have you done for me lately, right? Again, Absolutely. Because this is with electoral capture. We don't want Democrats to think that they can rest on their laurels, right? Mm -hmm. Just because he, was, he marched in the civil rights movement and things like that doesn't mean that's all he ever had to do. So I, I get that sentiment, but I don't think there's anything about his behavior or his statements or anything that suggests that he would not accept these positions. I think if Black Lives Matter came to him and said, we want this action to be taken. Would you support it? I think I, I would. I would be very surprised if he said no. He's just got a fire lit under him now. Yeah, well, especially now. But I think even before. I think that if they came to him, you know, or if, or maybe he should come to them. Either way, you know, um, you know, and said, "What can? What's important to you? What can I do for you?" I don't. I, I don't see that as being a tough sell for him. I how, don't know. how do you feel? Have you heard of the uh, Bernie So Black hashtag? I'm not a Twitter user. Okay, I, you're not I a Twitter, Twitter user. You gotta, I, you gotta I get with the 20, yeah, 21st century no. here, Professor Hickel. But uh, I, 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 I'm always one to call out white privilege, male privilege when I can, any kind of privilege. I, I, I try to be, I try to be progressive. I, I personally try to be politically correct. But the whole issue with Bernie so black was there was this dismissal. Uh, I feel of Bernie Sanders' track record and this, this, this. 
we'll say this quickness to dismiss anything he said at Netroots Nation. Now, I read the quote. It wasn't entirely tone deaf. He was addressing issues, although albeit in the the economic framework. Right, right. I, I just felt like the whole Bernie so black hashtag. I, since you haven't heard about it, we won't go too into. But so it was it, sort of a, a pejorative assault on him, like yeah, you know, like, like Ber- so Bernie, Bernie, Bernie so, like one of them was one had me cracking up. It was Bernie so black. He he went bald so that nobody would touch his hair. Okay, yeah. So stuff like that. It, it, it's I I get it, but. Let me, let me ask you this then. Um, you and I had talked about this years ago with the election of Barack Obama, first black president, extremely momentous, extremely historic. But you and I, both being democratic socialists, we called it out and we said, look, uh, the whole hope and the whole change thing, they're very good. They're excellent talking points. Yes, we can. Ultimately, as a, a neoliberal centrist democratic president, what kind of change is there going to be? Now, in my my discussion with Dr. Conyers, he said that the impact of Barack Obama for black people has been minimal. So let me ask you this. With regards to Obama becoming president and the minimal changes in the United States, in particular for black people, do you feel that African-Americans are jaded regarding presidential, jaded regarding presidential politics and the criticism of Bernie and the willingness to jump on Bernie? Do you think that that's, the, uh, that's in the wake of, of, of Obama's in action well, number as one, president? It, it is tough. You know, I am white, right? Uh, you know, so it's tough for me to really speak to what they're feeling or something like that. And I don't think that's necessarily fair. But it, it strikes me as reasonable to argue that there might be some level of, yeah, jadedness going on, right? So there was a big assumption by a lot of people that Bernie Sanders was going to fundamentally, fundam- or not Bernie Sanders, uh, Barack Obama was going to completely radically change America and things like that. And, you know, it was uh, it was completely unrealistic, right? He wasn't that radical. As you said, now, I wouldn't go as far as to call him neoliberal, but he's basically, you know, just left of center. He's left of Hillary Clinton, you know, something like that, but... He's fully in the Reagan era. Right, right. So he's not that, you know... You know, so I think there's, there's sort of that element. Um, this issue of, you know, how does that affect Bernie Sanders? You know, I... I I don't know, I'd be very suspicious of the idea that black people are so jaded by the Obama experience that he didn't do enough that now they feel like they shouldn't vote or they shouldn't participate at all or something like that. Do you feel like, like there's any kind of damage from that? Um, you know, there might be... You know, I mean, I, I could see some people arguing, well, if a black president didn't do it, then what's our hope with anyone else? Some old white guy. Right, some old white. What's he going to do? I think the difference would be, well, you know, Bernie Sanders has always been far to the left of Barack Obama. Always. You know, always been far to the left of Hillary Clinton. So, you know, um, if you actually want change, I would argue that he's probably the best man for the job. But, you know, uh, again, I, I can't speak for them. How do you think both groups both... The Sanders campaign, the economic liberals, economic justice liberals, white liberals... Uh, how do you think that they could work together with members of the Black Lives Matter movement? Well, again, I think that, you know, the benefit there would be, um, I mean, well, number one, one thing that can be said, Black Lives Matter movement does not really have an ideological cohesion, Mm -hmm. right? They're not lefty, necessarily. The only reason they're targeting Democrats is because, you know, they're part of a traditionally Democratic avenue open to them. Right. So, I mean, but they're not, like, lefty. They're not Democratic Socialists. They, They don't have any kind of particular ideological agenda backing them. So, you know, a way that they could work together, now, I think they naturally sort of fit together in a lot of ways. I think, you know, if Bernie Sanders, I think they could work together, Bernie Sanders could articulate a more racial justice message that's distinct from economic injustice. Um, and perhaps he could help them articulate an economic injustice message that can sort of tie in. I mean, even, you know, Martin Luther King eventually adopted, um, you know, I mean, he was a democratic socialist and he eventually became much more explicit about economic injustice, you know, and things like that. So. There's the potential for them both to evolve in a positive direction, perhaps. Um, 
But, you know, like I said before, I think one real concrete thing they can do is present him with some sort of actionable agenda item. Would you support this? And if he said yes, then all of a sudden Clinton now has to support it. Um, and if Clinton supports and she's the eventual nominee, then that creates a national debate between her and the Republican nominee, right? So ultimately, I think that's the, the best step forward. We're on the precipice of something potentially that can be really big. If they can unify behind, you know, and, and if they can speak with one voice kind of thing, you know, so we you all got to see how the movement develops and evolves. But yeah, I think so. Do you feel black people in America have a right to be angry at the system? Yeah, I think it's ridiculous to argue that they don't, right? I mean, so clearly you're a lot safer in the United States. At a minimum, just, you know, the basic uh, responsibility of a state is to keep you safe, yes. right? That's why we enter the social contract at a minimum, right? So... At a minimum, being white, um, you know, we don't have to, you know, white people don't have to worry as much about their personal safety doing everyday things, right? If I'm pulled over a cop and I'm being a jerk for whatever reason, I it never even enters my mind that I might be yanked out of the car or have a gun pulled on me. Like, that just never even enters my mind. You've been murdered in cold blood. Right. And, like, you, you know, so I watch these things when they when they happen and I'm just like, I'm like you know, like, I can't even imagine this happen. Like... The girl being yanked out of a pool party, like you know, Eric Gardner. Fourteen-year-old girl. Yeah. I can't even fathom what what it's what it's like to experience. I mean, the thought that that could happen just doesn't even enter my head. Whereas, if you're black in America, you have to have that conversation. You have to be on the lookout to to live in this sort of. I don't want to say live in fear, but certainly a higher level of awareness and tension than I experience as a white person. So, and that. That's the white privilege that everyone has to sort of recognize. I mean, personally, like I said, I'm a man of color. I'm, I'm brown. <laughs> when I was about 14, I specifically remember my father having a conversation with me, telling me that if you ever have any issues with the cops, just yes, sir, no, sir, and do whatever they ask you to do. You don't, you don't, want, any, don't want any issues. Bernie, who's an independent, he he ends up he realizes that he had the caucus with the Dems because oh, he yeah. tried to play his own play, you know, toot his own horn. They they wouldn't listen to him anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, there's no you you just don't get anywhere um, avoiding, but you know, par parties are central to getting anything done in Congress. There, there's a whole literature on it, so yeah, he has to caucus with them. Okay, so one last thing here, um, with regard to your commentary early on the tactics of Black Lives Matter, whether or not they should focus locally or nationally, what you think their best interest would be. Do you see Bernie getting past Iowa and New Hampshire, and do you see him getting numbers, getting votes in the the darker states, we'll say, the New York, New Jersey, California, well, you know, uh, the Deep South? I mean, unfortunately, a lot of those states don't, right? That By Super Tuesday, you know, often the things are sort of locked up, right? So it's going to be the first five or six states that where you really determine these things. Um, I think it's too early to call because, frankly, we have we don't know anything about anyone, right? Like, I know a lot about Bernie Sanders, and you do, because we're Democratic socialists. We've followed him for a long time, but... The country as a whole knows nothing about Bernie Sanders' policies, knows nothing about Hillary Clinton's policies. We know who they are to some degree. Most people don't know about Bernie, but we know who Clinton is and that sort of thing. But there's been no focus on their policies or issues. We're just not that far along in the primary season yet. So it's hard to really make any kind of prediction about how far he's going to go until the American public really learns about their policies. And that's going to come through a debate. So I think... We could maybe revisit this in like January or something. Um, would you be willing to come back and revisit? I this? certainly would, but I, I mean, for right now, I would. I'm optimistic that he will make it past the first two primaries. I think he'll get a respectable enough showing that people will want to keep him in the primary again, if for no other reason other than to pressure Hillary to the left. Donald Trump. Yeah, I saw you wrote Donald Trump on your sheet there. Yeah. <laughs> Has the Republican Party jumped the shark? 
Jump the show. Oh yeah, the, the Happy Days reference. Um, so when everything starts to go downhill for them, right? Well, or... let, let me say this. Uh, I find it fascinating that Donald Trump is doing to the Republican Party what the Republicans have done to everybody else for years now. He's trolling them. He's criticizing them. He's basically. You ever heard the phrase of uh, "Why don't you play chess with a pigeon?" Because ultimately the pigeons is going to shit all over the chessboard anyway. <laughs> it's kind of that way with Donald Trump. It's like they don't want to engage him because it's it's kind of he's like wrestling toxic. a shark. He's yeah. just going to drag you into the deep yeah, water anyway. Yeah. And, I mean, look at the if you look at the commentary, especially regarding John McCain. He said John McCain is not a hero. Yeah. Um, heroes don't get don't get captured. Um, John McCain spent I think five years in a POW yeah, camp, yeah. and I believe his father was a senator, and he refused to be given up. To be set free, unless his uh, compatriots were set free, also. I mean, I mean, I, think I don't that, agree with the man's politics, but th- that, that's yeah, I mean, I, I that's, that's the, heroic. I think self-sacrifice is inherently heroic. Um, you know, I, I see Trump's point. Like, the, the, just because you're captured doesn't necessarily make you here. I think the fact that you're willing to sacrifice yourself and joining the military entails that. So, I think that is inherently heroic. I mean, I think Trump is ridiculous, though, right? So. Um, I think it's interesting that he's out there. What what he does do that's positive for the Republican... I mean, there's two ways to look at it. On the one side, he makes Republicans look ridiculous because he's articulating these ridiculous positions. Mexicans and, and, are rapists. Right, so yeah. he, makes, he, he di- tarnishes the Republican brand in general that way. On the other hand, he's someone that Republicans could point to and say, you see, that's the extremist, not me. Right. So Jeb Bush can be like, I'm not Trump. I'm a rational Republican. He's the you know? Glenn Beck of uh, yeah, of yeah, he, politics. yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's a sort of living straw man, if if you want, you know, maybe. Well, let me let me touch on this. Mike Huckabee, when he didn't get the presidency, Mike Huckabee, and I, I think I commented on this earlier. When I say wrote the book, the guy literally wrote the book. Ran for president, didn't win. Has written twelve books, usually a uh, political, religious text. Yeah. He, yeah. His whole congregation grew. I don't know if you were aware. He was, a, I believe, a Baptist minister. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, half a million dollars a year. He for had the his, show on Fox. And for his show yeah. on Fox, half a million dollars he a year. He played bass with the uh, with Leonard Skinner. He, right? I, and, that and, makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> then you look at someone like Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin quit being governor of Alaska, didn't get to be, be vice president. She goes on speaking tours. She gets to run commentary on Fox. She Although Fox did cut her contract. Which, Fox did cut her contract, and she also gave up all her online content for free, which was mm-hmm. initially paid subscription. Yeah. Okay? So looking at the Ben Carsons, the Ted Cruz's, and even the Donald Trump's, best case scenario, they become president. Worst case for them, obviously not for us. Worst case scenario, what happens? They get the book deals, they get the speaking tours. Looking at someone like George W. Bush, George W. Bush uh, was paid one hundred thousand dollars to speak at a veterans conference. The president, he actually took a hundred grand from them to speak at, at one of their conferences. So that being said, with six, uh, 16 people, I believe, in the mm-hmm. pot now for the Republican... Is this just a money-making thing? Is this a money-making thing? I mean, because when I say I the Republican Party jumping the shark, I mean, these are things that I feel have... Uh, the, 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 these are things that I've pointed out for some time now, and once they've seen that it can become profitable, you have all these people jumping, all these clowns, I'll say, jumping into the car. Now, is this something that... Ha- like, once again, ha- ha- has has... Have the top level level Republicans jump the shark? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it, you. You make individuals really, over what's better. For you the do party. make a really interesting point. Yeah, I mean, it, it is odd that this, this could be seen as just sort of a money making scheme. Um, it's it's a blatant demagoguery. These people want to rile people up. Yeah, I mean, it's it's ultimately I think problem. It, you know, it delegitimizes the political system. Certainly, um, you know, it makes us it, look silly when it's just about greed and things. Yeah. So, but ultimately, it's a problem for Republicans, right? Democrats don't have that same issue going on, at least not yet. 
Um, no Frank Underwood. And, yeah, and frankly, from a Democratic perspective, it's like fine. Let them let the dog and pony show keep going out and doing their thing. They're making themselves look ridiculous. Frankly, the Republicans, because they failed to reach out to people of color and other minorities around the country, um, they stand very little mathematical chance of actually winning the presidency, absent some colossal failure by the Democrats. Right, so. It's sort of like, we'll bring them all out. It's, it's largely irrelevant who you nominate. In all likelihood, uh, just the numbers alone suggest that, you know, you don't have this because you're, you've been on the wrong side of history, you know, on, particularly on the gay rights issue, on climate change, and because, um, you know, frankly, uh, you don't want the votes of Hispanics and, and black Americans. You turn your back on them and you don't get those votes and that's a huge part of what helps you get elected. Yeah, nobody you know? cares about uh, Ben Carson, Marco Rubio, or uh, Ted Cruz. Well, <laughs> you know, an argument could be made, you know, there's this other, in the, the race literature, there's this, this a lot of stuff on linked fate, this idea that, you know, all, all black people, for example, should vote the same way. Why? Because being black is a defining characteristic of your life. Everything is reducible to the fact that you're black. It affects all life chances, things like that. So people of color, black people, should unite and support the same party. That's, that's the argument of linked fate. And as such, they've supported the Democratic Party recently because that's the best way to advance the political agenda. Vote as a block, and then that party has to take you seriously. So this ignores the potential for electoral capture, things like that. Now, Ben Carson and uh, Herman Cain, you know, Mr. 999, yeah, Mr. 999, what they sort of represent, this is sort of legitimate, is this argument, this countervailing argument in the literature that says, well, linked fate, yes, it happens. Is it normatively good? And the argument might be, it's really not, right? Because... People can take your vote for granted. And frankly, you're arguing that the black community is homogenous politically, which isn't necessarily true, right? It's there's, not fair. There's nothing inherently wrong with the idea of a black conservative. Yeah. Right? No and, groups are monolithic. No group right, is monolithic. So, you know, I think it's perfectly, I think it's good democratically for the Republican Party to have black conservatives and things like that and Hispanic conservatives. I think that's normatively good. By the way, have you heard of Jamila Bay? No. Jamila Bay, Jamila Bay is, is a black lesbian uh, atheist who spoke at CPAC this year <laughs> and couldn't comprehend why nobody was clapping when she was talking. Yeah, well, and, that, and that's the broader problem, right? So, like, yeah, it's great that you have Herman Cain. It's great that you have Ben Carson and Marco Rubio and things like that. The problem is that the party itself doesn't do anything to advance those interests. And frankly, more often than not, you just appear racist, right, all the time. Like... The people, not even political figures necessarily, but their supporters. There's, you know, tons of these things that happen that illustrate to people of color in the country that the Republican Party is not a place for you. You know, you look at the how they talk about Im immigration reform. You know, that signals to Hispanics it's no place for you. You know how they talk about, uh, particularly on Fox, how they've tried to delegitimize or make all these black victims into criminals you know, suggests the Republican Party is not a place for you. So it's great you have these diverse faces in your party, but unless your party is actually going to tackle these issues of importance, you know, it's clear that they don't want you. So Okay, one last thing I want to throw you away. I was reading an article recently, and they said that by the 2016 election, uh, they're projecting, or certain people are projecting, that there will be about 3 million Americans that will die of old age. Now, the majority of these elderly people do tend to vote Republican. What effects do you think that'll have on the 2016 election, particularly as conservatives don't seem to, or as conservatives continue to just simply play, pay lip service to uh, people of color, other minorities, and so on and so forth? Well, I, I don't know about 2016 necessarily, but I think on a long enough timeline, within the next 10, 15 years, whatever, that I, I think, yeah, these demographic changes are going to have an impact. So... You know, right now, it's correct to argue that the Republican constituency is, by and large, old, white, and rich. And as old people die out, 
they're not necessarily replaced, right? The the younger people that are in their 40s now that will be 50 in 10 years are not necessarily going to move to the Republican Party just because they turn 50. Yeah. The reason, you know, uh, it, it just so happens that old white Americans now vote Republican. So I think as they, you know, it's going to certainly affect their prospects moving forward. I think we saw that in the last election. And unless they make some real changes in policy and their platform, I think they're going to have a problem. Now, I mean, you know, we, we talked down on John McCain before, but I would say, you know, his actions in the election against Obama in 2008, where he specifically called, you know, an audience member, I remember, was trying to say that Barack Obama is a, you know, Muslim and he's a terrorist and this and the other he thing. He snatched the mic from him. And yeah, McCain snatched the mic from him and said, no, that is not right. We should not, that is bad politics. We're not going to denigrate our opponent like that. That was the single most redeeming quality of that campaign for McCain, right? Lots of mistakes with Palin, lots of other silly things he did, but that was a really great thing for American democracy because that's what Republicans have to do. If they want to change this image that their party is not a place for racial and ethnic minorities, then they need to do that kind of stuff. They need to help bring their own into um, sort of modernity. <laughs> do, do you see Republicans needing to turn their back away from the whole neoconservative ideology? Did John McCain kind of represent the last cowboy of, of paleoconservatism? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, well, you know, no one's really talked about neoconservatism since, like, the Bush years, right? Yeah. I guess it makes sense to talk about it with McCain. McCain certainly, I think, represents, you know, neoconservatism, so if we're... Well, look at the Ted Cruz. To share sort of the... What about Donald Trump? Well, Would Donald share, Trump be a neocon on well, steroids? you know, if, if we're going to define neoconservative, the way I internally define it um, would be, you know, uh, you are fiscally conservative domestically, and you believe in free trade, and not only do you believe in free trade, uh, but you believe that the U.S. should use their military to advance free trade, right? And that's sort of what a neocon sort of is to me, right? So big government to allow economic freedom, and as ironic as that sort of be, that's how you sort of understand it. Now, I don't know that Ted Cruz necessarily falls into that, because I... I mean, maybe. Maybe he does. You know, he, he is a little hawkish, I guess, on military. I guess a lot of the Republicans, you could argue, maybe fall into that line. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, George W. Bush did never came out and expressly said, I am a neoconservative. Ronald Reagan never no, expressly no. came out and said, I am a neoconservative. But Bush was heavily influenced by, by that mode of thinking. Right. And I think, well, I think a lot of... Uh, w. Bush. I think in terms of foreign policy, a lot of people still have that mindset mm -hmm. in the Republican Party. I don't think it's as much of an issue, right? I mean, um, I don't know. Our general foreign policy stance, I think, is sort of on autopilot, right? Bush is significant, uh, like him or hate him, significant political development in that we he created a new way of doing foreign policy. Absolutely. Right? And no president is really going to change that, right? Obama, you know, as much as he may have wanted to, he could not stop the train, right? We are an aggressive military state. Um, I believe Roosevelt said, speak softly, carry a big stick. Well, that was Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt. Bush, but Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt. And Bush said, I'm going to carry a big, big stick, and I'm not going to speak softly either. Right, right. And, you know, granted, the Americans, we've always had a strong military presence, you know, for right or for wrong or whatever. Um, I think Bush exacerbates this in the war on terror and new means of doing it. I think that all Republicans have to respond to that. All Democrats have to respond to it. So I don't know. I guess what I would say is... Neocon was a particularly salient term used in the left at that time because it stood in contrast to, let's say, other ways of thinking about foreign policy, right? Now, granted, Obama has tried to be much more diplomatic, and it's borne fruit recently with this Iran deal and things like that. You like the Iran deal? I haven't studied it enough to really make a comment okay. one way or the other. Broadly speaking, I like the idea of moving towards diplomacy and, and trying to bring the sable rattling back. You know, so, but yeah, I, I mean, I think neoconservatism as an idea had more salience then when there was actually a potential to either move in a neoconservative direction or towards a more diplomatic direction. Today, clearly, neoconservatism is sort of the status quo, particularly for Republicans. Okay. So.
Good, good, good. Um, one last thing. You mind if I take it back to Bernie just one yeah, more yeah, time? Yeah. Uh, you have this criticism of Bernie that he's kind of... Uh, Bernie is, is, is a Jewish man. Uh, there was this whole issue with oh, him. Oh, this isn't my criticism. This is... Uh, no, this is not your criticism. Yeah. This is not your criticism. Uh, Bernie uh, is a relative. I believe he's the, the, uh, the, the, the child of Holocaust survivors. There's this criticism of, of Bernie as turning his back on Palestine... When I, I I just don't see that as, as something that's true, he what it, what it was a he he did support the Israeli attack on Gaza when Gaza was it last year was Palestinians I don't want to say all of Gaza some Palestinians were firing firing those rockets into Israel and although they didn't really hit any big targets in Israel Israel kind of retaliated with with, with massive force a modern military modern missiles um, it was condemned by the UN. Uh, well, clearly a disproportionate response, yeah. Massively disproportionate response, which is illegal. Yeah. Okay? Uh, what he said was that the Israelis were heavy-handed and that they overreacted. And he actually criticized Israel for bombing schools that were filled with civilians because the Israelis claimed that there were guns there and no guns were ever found, no weapons were ever found. But uh, there's this attempt on the... Uh, I don't know... I, I, I don't know how to refer to them. I want to say the non-affiliated left. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the jaded left. Okay. Uh, that 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 he's he's a war hawk. That mm -hmm. uh, any anything I, you'd want to add to I that? Just, I just don't see any evidence for that sort of thing, right? So I think he's advocating positions that most people on the left or in American general would probably respect, right? Yes, Israel has a right to exist. You know, like. Um, you know, that, you know, broadly speaking, I, I find it hard to believe that he would not support the idea of Palestinian self-determination, that there should be, they should have their own state, their own government, whatever the final solution. People of, don't realize he was actually, uh, same way that uh, Black Lives, those Black Lives Matters activists uh, came at him at that conference. There was another instance where he was speaking, and it was uh, a lot of pro-Palestinian pro activists, mm -hmm. which, you know, I just he's not it, against Palestine. Yeah, I, I find it weird. I, there's nothing about him that I've read from any statement at any time or anything that suggests that he would not be in favor of sort of Palestinian self-determination if that became a salient issue, right? It's frankly not a salient political issue at the moment, right? We're not talking about Palestinians in the national debate like we were 10 years ago, you know? So, but I, I would argue that he, he, nothing about him strikes me as being to the right of certainly not Clinton, um, and yeah. nothing strikes me as being a right, you know, a he voted against the invasion of Iraq, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. I, I nothing about him strikes Clinton me as was being in favor of it. Right. Nothing about Bernie Sanders strikes me as being conservative on this issue, um, or not being in favor of Palestinian. Nothing strikes me as Bernie um, blindly supporting Israel. Um, if anything, I think he'd probably be more consistent with Obama, where it's this attempt to very slowly, you know, uh, put some distance between the U.S. and Israel in terms of blind support. He didn't. Like he didn't that. go see uh, when Netanyahu spoke to Congress. He didn't go to see him speak. Yeah, well, I think that's appropriate. Netanyahu was was trying to get involved in, in the American political system, which is you know, it's problematic. Could you imagine Fidel Castro coming it's, to speak to it, Congress and Democrats going yeah, to? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's just speak? it's just problematic on so many. Not the Democrats areas. were anything to do with Fidel Castro. Right, right, <laughs> but it's yeah, the whole thing is just problematic on so many levels. I mean, that's a whole nother you know, uh, show for you at that point. Right? Okay, so yeah. one last thing, and then uh, then I'm going to let you go. Uh, one of the big criticisms of, uh, I don't want to say just Bernie Sanders, but a lot of criticisms of voting in favor of some Democrats, particularly national, because locally, Democrats locally are significantly different from Democrats nationally. Yeah. 
okay? Uh, now, you and I have talked about this. I, I try to ask people to think about their top five to ten favorite people in their life. Mom, dad, boyfriend, girlfriend, best friend, whoever, okay? Think of the top five to ten people in your life, people that you care about, people that you agree with most things on. Now, who in your life do you agree with 100% of the time? Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Why would you expect to agree with 100% of, uh, of things uh, a potential presidential candidate would stand for? Like... Is that naive to sit there and think that this this magical person is going to show up that where, where you agree with everything? Yeah, I mean, I think I think totally. I mean, I think uh, so long as a candidate, you know, ultimately it's a rational decision. You vote for whichever candidate most closely aligns with your perspectives, right? Um, so you're never going to get 100% agreement. Never. You know, uh, but you try and get as close as you possibly can. For me, that's Bernie Sanders. For other people, maybe Clinton. It might be Ted Cruz. Whatever. Uh, that's rational for people to try and get as close as they can. Um, the question is, is that difference so significant that you can't support them? You know, that's a personal sort of question, but... Um, Do you see anything? I mean, Bernie Sanders, not perfect on the race issue. Not perfect, I don't want to say with foreign policy, but with regards to the yeah. Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, is, is there anything else about his campaign that is so far off that... that Progressives should turn their back on him. Because I mean, I, ultimately, unaffiliated left. Un, ultimately, I would argue he's the guy you have to default to because the base assumptions of his ideology are more consistent with yours, right? This base assumption that economic injustice is important, right? That class matters, you know. That you know all these assumptions. No one else in politics shares them at the moment, and it's running for president. Certainly not Clinton. Certainly not anyone of the Republicans. So I think that. You know, given that we share those basic assumptions, it's reasonable to assume that his position on any specific issue that may emerge, whether it's Israel-Palestine, whether it's uh, dealing with racial injustice, any of those things that emerge, he will likely be probably closer to your position than anyone else, right? I have no doubt that um, should a actual bill come up, you know, where people are trying to tackle racial injustice, that it'd be an easier sell to get him to go get on board than Hillary Clinton. Uh, anything trying to regulate Wall Street more significantly. I'll give you a concrete example, Glass-Steagall, right? Bernie Sanders says he would uh, support reintroducing Glass-Steagall. Hillary's not going to Hillary has been very ambivalent on it, and I can't imagine her supporting it, especially given that Bill Clinton's the one that signed the repeal into law, right? Well, looking so, at who her top donors are once again. Exactly. So, you know, I think because you share these base assumptions, he's a safer bet than someone like Clinton. Now, if you're more of a moderate Democrat, then fine, support Clinton. But if you are a Democratic Socialist or to the left in general, uh, you don't have to necessarily identify as a Democratic Socialist, but if you understand that economic injustice and class and these issues matter, I think Bernie Sanders is at least worth more consideration. Yeah, I'm just going to put it out there. Uh, Bernie Sanders this week just proposed a bill that would raise minimum wage to $15 an hour. So I don't understand like how that doesn't help Everyone. I mean, that that's something that could definitely benefit, particularly African American people. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's a little you know getting back to the Black Lives Matter thing, right? This critique that economics, you know, he's he, he's only addressing economics. He's not addressing uh, particular issues of concern and things like that. There's plenty within the Black community, plenty of influential leaders, and things like that, that do argue that yeah, economics isn't the only game in town, but it's a huge part of it. And doing something like raise the minimum wage would go a tremendous way in providing for a better life and things like that. So, I don't know. I don't see the fissure there that everyone's making out to be. Not saying he's perfect, but I, I don't see... He's not perfect. Nobody's the, perfect. It seems that, at least implicitly, the Black Lives Matter movement is suggesting there's this big gulf between Bernie Sanders and them, implicitly also arguing that there isn't this gulf between Black Lives Matter and Hillary Clinton. 
And I don't see that. I, I don't understand that analysis. I don't think that there's a big gulf between Black Lives Matter and Bernie Sanders. And I don't think that Hillary Clinton and Black Lives Matter are that close either. There's a little dishonesty wrapped up in it. I, I don't know if it's dishonesty. I mean, I don't think Hillary Clinton deserves the accolades she's receiving. I think a lot of it is her being an opportunist, being strategic, learning from the fact that the last campaign where she didn't get very much support from the you know people of color and things like that, I think she's learning and she's being strategic, which is smart. It's rational for her. But I, just because you're being an opportunist, uh, I don't think that earns your support and loyalty. And again, talking about electoral capture, you know, like you got to be more explicit. You can't just give people, um, you know, your vote without demanding something in return. Absolutely. So, which is something that uh, Dr. Conyers spoke about in our last oh, there we last go. meeting. Yeah. Um, Flavio, thanks a lot. I appreciate this. Hope we could do it again in the future. And uh, it's been a pleasure uh, talking to you. And thanks for being a guest. Anytime, man. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. We'd like to thank you for listening to this amazing conversation with Professor Flavio Hickel, Jr. Flavio is a personal friend and dedicated democratic socialist. A little known fact is that Flavio actually composed the music for modernity and absurdity. Now there's a plethora of literature on electoral capture and linked fate. Go ahead and check them out. One quick editorial note. At about the 19 minute and 34 second mark, I said Harry Reid wanted the goal of the Republican Party during President Obama's first term to make sure he didn't have a second term. It was actually Mitch McConnell that made that statement. I don't know why, but I always seem to confuse the two. If you'd like to provide any feedback for this program, you can email me at perezpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at perezpodcast or check out the Facebook page, Modernity and Absurdity. Thanks again. Take care of yourselves. After this, there is no time. You take the blue pill. Story ends. You wake up in your bed whatever you want. You take the red pill. Stay in Wonderland. For a dictatorship, it'd be a heck of a lot easier. <laughs> Just so long as I'm the dictator. <laughs> this is an impressive crowd, the haves and the have more. Some people call you the elite. I call you my base. Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. Saddam Hussein aids and protects terrorists, including members of Al-Qaeda. No, we, we, we've had no evidence that Saddam Hussein was involved with the September 11th.
that when we talk about war, we're really talking about peace.